This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Jessica will be back next week. If you like what you're listening to, please go to patreon.com slash Friendly Atheist Podcast. This week, I had the chance to talk to Sarah Levin. She's the Director of Grassroots and Community Programs at the Secular Coalition for America. She has served in various roles at the SCA since 2013, including as the organization's chief lobbyist on Capitol Hill and as the state chapter coordinator, managing and growing the organization's state chapter program and implementing various grassroots campaigns on the national and state level. I spoke with her about the biggest church-state separation concerns in this administration, what counts as a success in the age of Trump, and how the Secular Coalition wants to empower atheists across the country to get active in state politics. Sarah, thank you so much for being with me. Let me just start off by asking you, you know, every day, I think people who support church-state separation people who are are generally liberal or Democrats. I mean, it's very frustrating right now because it seems like the wall of church-state separation seems to be crumbling all the time. So let me ask you, with your work with the Secular Coalition for America, what sorts of issues are you all focusing on right now? So in terms of actual issues that we're lobbying on, um, we're playing a very close, uh, paying a very close attention to the Johnson Amendment uh, we we warned our supporters not to be too quick to take a victory lap just because we kept it out of tax reform, but we are still watching to make sure that it's kept out of this uh, budget debate. So for those who may not know or may not remember, the Johnson Amendment is a provision in the tax code that prohibits 501c3 nonprofits, including churches, from endorsing, impo- opposing, or otherwise supporting candidates for office. A 501c3 is the kind of nonprofit that when you give money to them, you're, it's tax deductible. So that's a really special tax benefit for 501c3 nonprofits to have. And so the string attached to, well, if you're going to get this taxpayer-subsidized benefit, then you can't be getting involved in, in meddling in, in partisan politics because that amounts to taxpayer-funded partisan So this applies to like the NRA, Planned Parenthood and churches that are nonprofits. They just they can endorse candidates, even though they could say these are our issues. This is what we care about. And maybe this is what this politician said about our issue. Just FYI, all of that is fine. Absolutely. Yes, you're right. There's actually a lot you can do without violating the Johnson Amendment. You can do a voter guide and say, well, here's where candidate A and candidate B stands on the issues that we care about. As long as you don't say vote for or vote against so-and-so. Now, last year, last year, Donald Trump held like a Rose Garden ceremony where he said he signed an executive order repealing the Johnson Amendment. So what happened there? Well, he didn't sign an executive order repealing it. He signed an executive order that called for the IRS to basically be lax in its enforcement of it, specifically when it comes to churches. So that was really alarming. It was more of a message to the IRS, which, by the way, this is not enforced as is. So we already have an enforcement problem because houses of worship are file, are, are violating this all the time. And in fact, one of the main proponents for repealing the Johnson Amendment, the Alliance Defending Freedom, They, uh, for a number of years, had a Pulpit Freedom Sunday where they encouraged clergy to endorse candidates from the pulpit, tape themselves doing it, 
and to send those tapes to the IRS, basically challenging them to take the bait, which they never do. And so it's, it's, it's kind of a joke. It's not even enforced in the first place, but the, the reason we're concerned about why, you know, well, people might say, well, if it's not enforced, why are you even worried about it in the first place? Well, there's a really important aspect of the, of, uh, nonprofit laws that impacts houses of worship differently than all other nonprofits, which is that while the Johnson amendment applies to all 501c3 nonprofits, the requirement to file what's called the Form 990 to the IRS, which is really a, a mechanism for transparency for American taxpayers. So you can look up the Form 990 of the American Red Cross or Goodwill. And or, I can see where they're sending all, spending all their money, how much, uh, I think I'd find out how, many, how much people are donating to them and all that. Absolutely, exactly. So it's a great tool for making an informed decision um, as a donor about where you want to put your money. And Houses of Worship, are the only 501c3 nonprofits who are not required to file the Form 990, and that's status quo. So imagine what happens What happens if you repeal the Johnson Amendment and all of a sudden all of these 501c3s can endorse candidates. Well, Houses of Worship will not only be able to do that, but there's no paper trail to show how they're spending their money. So it would be very, very easy for candidates to say, hey, you know, I'm going to donate $50,000 to your church. It'd be great if you endorsed me. And, you know, maybe they'll maybe put 10000 back into my campaign. I mean, there's just so much, and so much that can happen. But if there's no paper trail, there's no way to hold them accountable. In addition to that, I mean, it would be so e- it's so easy to start. I mean, I, who was it? I think John Oliver, who started a, a church uh, right. on his show to right. show how easy it was. I mean, it really is easy. And so what's going to happen is that a bunch of PACs and C4s that would normally uh, you there, there are parts of the tax code that allow for endorsing candidates, but there's rules and reporting required. And so what would happen is folks who normally give money to, uh, you know, PACs or C4s that it's not tax deductible, they'll say, oh, why should I do this? Why don't I just, um, you know, give to a, a C3 that's an, and not only get to endorse, support my candidate, but also have that be tax deductible. So we would really see a, a number of churches all of a sudden open up and it would just be a huge hole for more dark money to get into our political system. And by the way, just to point out, a lot of religious people are opposed to this too because they don't want their churches getting mixed up in politics. They feel like they have a broader purpose. They're doing something for a bigger reason than like temporal politics. And so they don't want to play this game either. They want their church to be about church, about these universal life truths, in their opinion, and so they are as opposed to the Johnson men being repealed as all of you, all of us are. Absolutely. I mean, there's not a single faith denomination that's come out in support of repealing the Johnson Amendment. It's a very narrow interest group of already politicized Christian groups that are really advocating for this. We've been lobbying alongside uh, lots of faith allies, including the Interfaith Alliance, the Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty. I mean, there, there, there's been letters sent with 
over a hundred faith denominations signed on saying, please keep the status quo. We don't want the Johnson Amendment repealed. It's really uh, amazing how we've come together with a lot of faith allies uh, that we work with on this issue, as well as the nonprofit sector. I mean, the National Council of Nonprofits has been extremely active on this as well because they don't want the public trust undermined uh, by repealing the Johnson Amendment. Because once you know, there's there's so many institutions right now that the public doesn't trust. It's really unfortunate. We don't want the nonprofit sector be to, to be the next to go, to be politicized. We want people to be able to trust that nonprofits do good things. And if you give them, um, you know, if you donate your money, that they're, it's going to go to a good cause and not to partisan politics. So just to recap really briefly, Donald Trump had that ceremony where he basically, you said, told the IRS to look the other way. But that's kind of what they were already doing. So that didn't really have any big effect. Then the Republicans tried to put it in their tax bill that they passed in December, but it was taken out. The repeal was taken out before it finally passed. And you're are you you're worried that they may try to push it in again through another like backdoor channel or something? Yes, exactly. And that would be through the appropriations process. Okay, so that's one of the issues the SCA is working on right now, trying to make sure that doesn't happen. What other issues are you really focused on? So one other issue I'll mention is uh, FEMA funding. So, you know, obviously there's legislation um, that's being discussed in Congress to address disaster relief. And unfortunately, our opponents on the religious right are exploiting this opportunity to try to open the door for taxpayer funding to directly build churches after a disaster. And I, I have to clarify that status quo right now, if you have a church uh, or house of worship that uh, is impacted by disaster and you use your church facilities to provide government-like services and you sustain damages in the process of providing services. So for example, if you put a bunch of cots in your church basement so that people can shelter there and those cots rip up the carpets and you sustain damages for providing those services, you can already get reimbursed for those damages by FEMA. So it's not like the, the, our opponents are basically trying to paint this as it's unfair. Houses of worship are being discriminated against because they don't get access to FEMA funds the way everybody else does. And that's just not true. And they're playing on that and playing, of course, on the heartstrings of people who are, uh, you know, looking at these terrible disasters and how they're impacting communities. But the, the truth is that that's the status quo. And what they really want to do is to be able to use the government as a sort of insurance policy so that if a church gets damaged, in, instead of, you know, just going the normal route of, you know, either raising money in the community or using their insurance to rebuild, uh, just like everybody else, every individual does when they're uh, when, when they're in, when businesses and, and individuals are impacted, they basically want to be able to use that opportunity to give them money, regardless of whether they provided any services whatsoever to the local communities in the disaster so that they can rebuild things that are explicitly and primarily religious, whether that's a, 
you know, a church steeple or, you know, anything you can think of, a gold-plated throne for, a, for <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, the altar, you know, a minaret, uh, you know, whatever you can think of. And, and that's just a the, the most basic violation of the separation of church and state, that taxpayers are not to be compelled to have their taxes used to directly build and churches and to endorse religion. So, so that's hurricane, something that we're keeping a close eye on. So like Hurricane Harvey hits Texas, it takes down a bunch of schools, it takes down a bunch of churches as well. Well, the schools are government buildings, They they people pay taxes for those, so those are going to get rebuilt maybe using FEMA funds, but you're saying the churches that get damaged say, oh, well, the government should rebuild my church too, even though they right. don't pay any taxes, and that's directly helping them for, with their religion, even though they're not doing anything secular for the community or something. And didn't a court weigh in on this recently? Because I know there was a lawsuit involved where the churches were suing to say, give us FEMA money. So this is very, well, I, yes, there was. Um, and that, that we're, we're going to see what happens with that, given that there was a uh, there was a change in FEMA policy, and uh, unfortunately, that reinterprets what community center means. Um, and so, to it to expand it to include uh, religious organizations, what we're what we're trying to do is to beat back any legislation that would codify that change, because that change can be by an executive agency can be challenged. But once the law is changed, then it's very difficult to go back. So that we're, we're, we're kind of watching to see what happens and to see if that lawsuit is, is dropped. So you're um, saying that policy you're, change. you're saying that let's say in like 2020, there's a Democrat in the White House, an executive order could overturn whatever whatever FEMA is doing right now. And that's an easy fix, hopefully. But if they legislate this thing, now you got a whole big process to undo it and you're trying right, to stop exactly. that. Exactly. So we've already taken a step backward with the FEMA policy change. But what we're really trying to prevent is codifying that uh, in legislation. And so there, there's a number of bills we're looking at that we're trying to beat back. And, um, you know, it's something that I think is important to keep in mind that it's not just about the fact that it would be taxpayer funds going to churches. You have to keep in mind that there is a limited pool of money and a limited pool of resources and any those resources that, you know, should this happen, that would be directed to houses of worship that will impact other local communities that need that money. You know, the public schools, the libraries, the, the community centers um, that would, the, the municipalities are really going to be impacted by this as well. So it's it's really important to educate on this topic because it's just so easy to tug at the heartstrings and make it seem like churches are being left out when in fact there's already a way for churches that do do that really good work of providing services during a disaster to people for them to get reimbursed for any, any damages that they sustain in the process of doing that. So let me ask you that about any successes you all are having? Because I think one of the things I've felt over the past year, at least, is that it seems like every day it's just another defeat, another defeat, and then, you know, minor hope that whatever chaos is happening in D.C. will stop. But, like, for the most part, it just feels like it's an overwhelming sense of nothing's going in the right progressive direction. Has have you and your staff at the your colleagues at the SEA felt like there's been any success over the past year? And do you think your lobbying efforts are going to go anywhere, given the government we have right now? 
That's a good question. I think, you know, you have to look at the reality around you and, and measure your success in, in, in the realm of what is possible. Right. And so I think we've been very successful in building really strong relationships, um, on, on both sides of the aisle, by the way, you know, there are still, um, Republican offices that, you know, I I've spoken to Republican offices that understand and agree with us on the theme issue, because from their perspective, they see it as opening up a whole can of worms, um, for, for, you know, well, you know, this can go to any type of religion, uh, you can think of not just Christian, um, not just, not just Christian churches and, you know, they, they understand the need for the separation. And so, you know, those relationships on, um, continue to be built, I also think, you know, yes, we're playing defense. I mean, there's no doubt about that. We have an administration and unfortunately a Congress, a majority of Congress that's very hostile to the separation of church and state and is very friendly to the uh, evangelical Christian right. But that that's why I think it's so important to measure success in terms of capacity building. What are we doing to build up our our grassroots infrastructure to beat this back? What are we doing to prepare for the 2018 midterm elections? What are we doing to get Republicans and Democrats and Greens and Libertarians to recognize that secular voters are a constituency that agrees in very large numbers, more unanimously than the evangelicals even agree on a number of issues, that we're a constituency to pay attention to, that our values, our secular values are nonpartisan because they're American values based on the Constitution. And we've had a lot of successes with capacity building in the last year that we're really excited to build upon. And, you know, I, I think it's just important to look at the reality. Yes. Are we are, we're, are we in a hostile environment where we're not going to get a lot of proactive, positive legislation passed? Yes. But when you're in that situation, you have to measure your metrics by what is what is possible. And what is possible is to beat back as much as possible um, bad legislation, which we have done. You know, the, the Johnson Amendment with was kept out of tax reform and it was close. Um, there was so much education to be done on the Hill about to staffers and their bosses about what exactly the Johnson Amendment is. You know, prior to it being elevated by this administration, I can't tell you how many congressional offices had no idea what the Johnson Amendment was. And they had no idea that houses of worship didn't have to file a Form 990. And so it's important to keep in mind that a lot of the lobbying that we do, it's not just asking members of Congress to support or oppose something. A lot of it is being a resource and educating members of Congress and their staff about the issues. Because remember, they can't be experts on every single issue. They have a few things that they know a lot about, and they rely a lot on outside organizations um, to be reliable subject matter experts on those issues. And so it, 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 I can understand that it can be very frustrating because a lot of the stuff is happening behind the scenes. How do you measure relationships? But I can tell your listeners that we are building those relationships where seen as a reliable resource on these issues even for offices that don't agree with us, who, who at least know where we stand and know that we represent non-religious voters in their districts and in their states. Um, and in my, in my view, we really need to be measuring success right now in this hostile environment with what we're doing to prepare for a better administration in the future and a, and a better, a, a more friendly Congress um, and showing candidates uh, for the upcoming elections that they really should pay attention to the secular community. So that's a good segue into talking about something I recently heard the Secular Coalition for America was doing, which was 
partnering with a group called the United Coalition of Reason to really uh, help them with things going on for the 2018 midterms. I want to ask you about that, but just for people who are unfamiliar, let me tell you what the United Coalition of Reason is from my perspective, because what I know in Chicago is that a representative from the United Coalition of Reason basically put together, they said, look, these are all the local organizations in Chicago. Let's bring you all together because some, some of you work together, some of you may not know each other. And they, they said a couple of years ago to us, we'll pay for a billboard that basically said a message like, you know, uh, you can be good without God. It'll have the website for the United Coalition of Reason. But really, they didn't ask anything else of us. They just said, we want all these local secular groups to work together, to share information, to support each other. And if you're willing to do that, we'll, we'll pay for this billboard for you, which was awesome. And I, I, so many cities around the country did this. And a lot of those coalitions, even without any oversight or anything like that, they've stuck together. They've been working together. They've been promoting each other's events. Um, but they're pretty loose affiliations here. So I heard that the SCA was going to work with these various coalitions heading into 2018. What does that mean? What does that partnership entail? And and what can listeners who aren't part of any of these organizations, what does that mean for them? So that's a really good question. I'd like to start with an example of how the Secular Coalition facilitates cooperation at the national level, because I think the reason that this is such a great fit uh, and a great partnership is because this is going to allow us to take United Coalition of Reason to the next level and facilitate, as we do at the national level, cooperation at the state and local level so we can be more effective. So a great example of that, how we did that with our member organizations in October was when the Trump administration issued, they dropped two big pieces of news um, on a Friday of a holiday weekend, which they love to do because it makes it really hard for the press to cover it. It makes it really hard for lobbyists to, to respond because it's a Friday. And so one thing was the was the Health and Human Services changing the rules regarding employers having to provide contraception for employees if it violated the beliefs of the employers. And the other was the Department of Justice issuing a memorandum on religious liberty. And that was a very comprehensive, the way I talk about that memo is it was like as if the religious right were to write a letter to Santa Claus with their wish list of all the things they'd like to see happen policy-wise. This is their policy wish list in a memo. And a lot of the attention went to the, the, the birth control ruling that came out of Health and Human Services, but it was the secular community that jumped on the memorandum. And so I emailed my colleagues you know, at the American Atheists, at American Humanist Association, at Freedom from Religion Foundation, at Center for Inquiry, and we got together on Monday when a lot of us actually had off that day, but we knew this was important. And we got on a phone call and we said, okay, we don't have a lot of time. In a week and a half, it's going to be the first time that the Attorney General, Jeff Sessions, is going to come before Congress, and they're going to have so many questions about him, uh, so many questions for him in a really limited amount of time. We have to make sure that at least one of the senators on the Senate Judiciary asks him about this memo so we can get him on the record about what he's trying to do here. And we have to get 
uh, an analysis of this really long memo to congressional staffers who have bosses on their judiciary committee. And we have to, you know, we had, there were so many things that we had to do and very little amount of time. And we had to be experts on this memo pretty much overnight. And the only way, and not only did we accomplish all of that, and we were able to get in the hands of staffers, a, a one or two pager with highlights of here's what it does. This is why this is problematic. We got that in this in the hands of congressional staffers who deal with judiciary issues. We got letters out to the Senate Judiciary Committee and the House Judiciary Committee signed by all 18 of our national member organizations opposing the memo and expressing our concerns. And we made sure, thanks to our lobbying, there were three senators that asked about that memo at the hearing that happened. None of that, I'm telling you, none of it would have been possible if we hadn't worked together. If we hadn't said, we need to get on a call and we need to delegate and you're going to do this and you're going to do that. Because if it was just SCA working on it or just AHA working on it or just American Atheists working on it, we just never would have been able to get all of that information out and have that enormous success of, of getting um you know, Attorney General Sessions looking like a deer in the headlights when he was asked a question um, about about his memo. And so that is just an example of the kind of thing that we can do at the state and local level. There are a limited amount of resources, um, but there and and there's so much work to be done. And when we work together and we delegate and we find ways to, you know, fill in the gaps and connect the dots, we can accomplish a lot together. And the reason that this is so wonderful is a lot of those United Coalition of Reason chapters, they're made up of local groups of our member organizations. They're made up of atheist groups and humanist groups and ethical societies and chapters of black nonbelievers. I mean, these are, these are largely local groups of our member organizations that we already work with at the national level. And so this is a great opportunity to leverage our relationships, pool resources, and be a real resource for local grassroots leaders to do more and to engage in the kind of programs that are already being uh, funded and resourced by our member organizations. So you said the thing about Jeff Sessions, you're doing that at the national level, obviously, but you're saying you're going to empower a lot of these United Coalition groups in various cities to kind of do a similar thing at the state level, inform people of what's going on in, uh, inform their elected officials in the state that this legislation is bad because of this reason. Is that correct? And like, how are you doing that with the limited staff and resources that you all have? So I, I think a great example of what we're going to be uh, doing in terms of policy and advocacy uh, with this partnership, and this is just one of many, many things that I'm happy to talk about more, more, more. But one thing is we really want to see teams of constituents in every single congressional district in the country. That's 435 congressional districts. And so imagine that, uh, you know, something comes up with the Johnson Amendment that and we have a few weeks until we know what's going to happen with it. And Congress goes into recess. Well, what happens when Congress goes into recess is that members of Congress go home into what they call uh, district work periods. And that's when they go out into the community and maybe they, they visit constituents, they do town halls, they go to the local community centers, they, they, they visit, they, they, they show their faces um, and talk to constituents. And, and this happens pretty much every time they, they go back. And these are great opportunities to liaise with and, and, and bring visibility to your issues. So imagine that every single time 
a member of Congress went home and they had a town hall that there's a group of secular constituents there who are asking questions and saying, I'm with the local, you know, fill in the blank group, humanist group, atheist group. I want to know what your position on the Johnson Amendment is. Are you aware that that this has been tacked onto the tax reform bill. What are you going to do in to ensure that it, it's not included in the final version of the tax reform package? Imagine that we hit every member of Congress every single time they come home on any given issue that we're working on. That is grassroots advocacy. That's not lobbying, but it is the necessary counterpart to the lobbying that we do in D.C. Because I can go talk to members of Congress and their staff until I'm blue in the face and say, hey, you know, one in four Americans is religiously unaffiliated and they're active and they're watching this X and Y issue. But if they never hear from a secular constituent, then there's not a lot of power behind what I'm saying. And so the the marriage between grass tops and grassroots is that. So one of the things we're going to be doing is working with our United Coalition of Reason groups to identify constituents and build these teams who can be Uh, reliable, rapid response constituents. So when we say, hey, we need you to go to town hall and ask this question, turn on your phone and record it and then send it to us, that we have that (laughs) in every congressional district, that when we need them to do more than emails, more than tweets, more than Facebook, when we need them to actually pick up the phone, that they will pick up the phone and that we can do that in a timely manner. So that's just one example of many, many other ways that we can use and leverage this partnership to enhance the lobbying that we're doing in D.C. with powerful grassroots advocacy. One of the people we talked to on this podcast a uh, a while back was Justin Scott, who is this activist in Iowa, and he lives in Iowa. So when the 2016 primaries were happening before the Iowa caucus, he had all these Republicans and Democrats coming into everywhere in the state, everywhere he lived, And one of the things I found really amazing is that he would go to all of these meetings that various candidates had. These are not necessarily people friendly to church state separation, but he would, you know, for example, Ted Cruz would come to town when he was in the running and Justin would basically ask him, what do you say about church state separation? What do you say to atheists to get them to vote for you? And it was, it's not like you couldn't predict what they were going to say in some cases, but he always got it on video. It was always interesting to see them talk about these issues because, you know, they try really hard to dodge them in every other case, it seems. And so I agree with you that if you can get atheists to show up at these town hall meetings and ask Congress, uh, members of Congress about specific issues, the Johnson amendment, all these other things, and you get it on video and you get these questions on the record, this stuff matters. This stuff comes back uh, in case they go back on their word. This stuff makes a difference. So I could see how that could be really, really powerful. I did want to ask you about one other thing. Yeah, please. Don't mind me adding. So um, I'm glad you mentioned Justin Scott, because we just had Justin do a webinar for our state chapters and volunteers on how to create a buzz around your activism, where he told the story of how he went about this in Iowa. And I think that's a really good example of what we're going to be trying to do is we're we're going to be avoiding reinventing the wheel. And really, it's going to be a focus on empowering grassroots leaders like Justin Scott to replicate their successes across the country. So the reason we had that webinar is because we want other grassroots leaders to see this is what Justin did. And Justin's going to tell you himself how he did it and why it worked and what worked and what didn't for him. And here's his contact information if you want to do what he did. And so a big part of what we want to do, in addition to leveraging our resources to kind of expand upon our programs, is to really just 
give a platform for grassroots leaders who have been successful to replicate and teach others uh, what they've been successful in. And speaking of Iowa, I actually just got an email um, yesterday from a United Coalition of Reason leader in Iowa who um, said, hey, you know, we, we actually use the, the planks that you came up with um, and submitted them to our local uh parties and these are the same ones that we made we made up in 2016 and he said they're just as relevant now as before because there haven't been any improvements in Iowa on these issues but that's just another example of you know there's these resources that we've created that we want to make them available uh, for uh, across the country and so uh, it's it's not just about you know what our programs are. It's about how do we get grassroots leaders like Justin Scott, like this leader in United Coalition of Reason. How do we get those resources in their hands so that they can have those successes? And if anyone is interested in in being one of those people who's going to these town hall meetings, what should they do? So that you can go right now, you can go to secular.org and you can sign up for our Rapid Response Network, um, and. What, right now, I think we have about a quarter of congressional districts covered, and we send that list town hall alerts. And when we have other things that we need them to do, like pick up the phone or go to their the district office of their congressional representatives, um, that's where you'll get those alerts. And this is for people who want to do more than the easy action alerts, which are also really impactful um, from your phone or or an email. This is the above and beyond showing up in person and picking up the phone kind of activism. And just to give one example of how this has already made an impact, we launched the Rapid Response Network earlier last year, at the, I think in the beginning of the year. And we had six members of Congress get on, uh, on the record on the Johnson Amendment, thanks to our Rapid Response Network constituents who went to those town halls and turned on their phone. And one of my favorite stories was an Illinois constituent who went to a town hall and his um, representative was there. And you can hear this on the audio where he says uh, that he's an atheist and he believes in separation of church and state. And when he says that, you can hear everyone clapping around him. (laughs) And that's really, really powerful because what, what think about it from the perspective of the, the, the congressman. He just saw a constituent stand up and say, I'm an atheist and I support the separation of church and state. And everybody around him clapped in support. That mean, That's a signal to that congressman that, wow, my constituents care about this. This is something I need to remember. This is something that's going to stick out in his mind, that this is something that not it's not just this one individual it's not just important to this one person who stood up. It's important to everybody else in the room that clapped. One of the things I wanted to bring up before I let you go, uh, in Texas in 2016, uh, a group of the United Coalition, I believe, they were part of the state's Democratic uh, whatever. I don't remember the situation, but they right. had impact on changing the Democratic Party's platform in that state they actually got a few of their issues to be part of the platform. And I think that's one of the things you all mentioned you were trying to do in other states as well. And I'm wondering, you know, one, does that even matter? And two, how do you make that happen in other states? 
I'm so glad you asked. So that actually was the, uh, the work of the Secular Coalition, um, and that was uh, what we're now calling the Party Crashers Project. Um, but that was, the, that was the test case was in Texas where um, we had two chapter leaders who, and our chapters are nonpartisan, but, you know, as you know, volunteers wear many hats. And we had two volunteers who also happened to be active within the Democratic Party in Texas. And working with them, we had... Um, that success where we not only had three of our policy planks incorporated into the Texas Democratic Party platform, including calling for the removal of the religious test for office in the Texas state constitution, which of course is unenforceable, but it's still on the books. Um, We also had a secular caucus at the convention and there was a room for 300 people And it was not only every seat was filled, but it was standing room only. People just made a beeline for it when they saw that there was a secular caucus on the program because there was so much appetite for exactly this kind of work. And so we're trying to replicate that success across the political spectrum in different states. And so, you know, the the second part of your I think the first part of your question was, was how do you how do you do this? It's actually very simple. You recruit people who are secular or faith allies who believe in the separation of church and state, who believe in this kind of work, who are also active within their political party, whatever that party happens to be. Because the way that state parties um, and that the political parties generally organize, it's so much about who you know, because it varies from place to place. The way that you get a secular caucus in Texas is not the same way you do it in Virginia. It's very, very different. Texas is a very informal process. Virginia, you have to have bylaws and you have to have uh, members from at least 15 different committees in the state. And it's just it's a whole thing. And so as once you identify people who are active in their party, who are willing to do this, we have the resources to give them to do it, but it's really driven by the party activists themselves. And so that's so if, if you're listening and you are active in the, your, in the Republican Party, in the Democratic Party, in the Green Party or the Libertarian Party, not just registered, not just affiliated, but you're active in some way. You've worked on a campaign. You've gone to a local chapter meeting. Maybe you sit on a, your local chapter committee or you've been a delegate in the past. If you're active and you want to carve out a space for secular voters and our values in your party, go to secularvaluesvoter.org slash partycrashers and sign up with us. And to answer your, your second question, Hemant, which is, why, does this even matter? Why is it important? The political parties are very much the levers to power. This is These are the, the machines, essentially, that uh, where, where activism in the where, – where, where candidates are are recruited, where candidates are uh, supported a lot of the time. This is where, you know, that platform um, is is the agenda of the party. And while not every candidate has to agree with every single thing that's on the platform, this is kind of like a, an on the record, this is what our party stands for. And so you can look at the platform and then question a candidate from your party and say, so the platform says this about the separation of church and state. How will you ensure, how will you further this cause? Where do you where do you uh, land on this issue? It kind of gives you a starting point to say, well, this is what the party stands for. So how are you going to um, further that uh, agenda item. So that's why it's important to get on the agenda in the first place. Um, It's also a great opportunity to educate party leadership, local, state, and above, about secular voters, because 
these are the parties are the ones that that do a lot of the voter registration and voter outreach. They work on messaging. And so the messaging and the agenda items that come out of a party uh, on our issues, there needs to be somebody in the room saying, hey, make sure that candidates know that our leadership knows that whether we're in an, both in internal meetings and externally when we're talking to the public, that we never conflate faith and morality. Because when we do that, we're being exclusive of the non-religious community. And let's make sure that we're not doing anything to imply that you have to be a person of faith to be a good person. And let's talk about issues like reproductive rights and LGBT rights in terms of religious freedom. Because for the non-religious community and our secular voters, they they see and and we as a party should see that these things are connected, um, very much related. And so we can't just talk about them in silos. We should maybe have some conversations about how this has to do with religious freedom and the separation of church and state. I'm just going to give you an example. I was tabling at the Young Democrat Convention just a few weeks ago, and I can't tell you how many activists came up to me and said, I feel exactly this way. I agree with everything you're doing, but I just never really knew how to talk about it with other people. They just wanted the language. Like, how do we, how do we talk about secular values? They, it's not that they don't have them. It's just that verbalizing it to other people and verbalizing it to leadership who are making all these kinds of decisions that impact the kind of candidates we're seeing, the kind of messaging we're seeing, the kind of agenda items that are coming out of the parties, having conversations with that party leadership to make sure that they're being inclusive of the non-religious, that they understand secular values, that they think our issues are important, that makes a huge, huge difference. And we can really play a role by carving out a space for our voters, for our values, and by the way, also for openly secular candidates. Every single political party can do a much better job, has a lot more work to do to ensure that candidates from their party know that they don't have to be religious to run for office. We need to be a part of carving out that space and pressuring from the inside the political parties to be inclusive of non-religious candidates as well. You all have a lobbying day coming up for people who are interested in uh, talking about their views to members of Congress? Absolutely. And that is April 25th. It is an awesome event where you come to D.C. We schedule meetings for you with your members of Congress. We train you on how to lobby and for the issue on the issues of the day that we're going to be talking about. And then we walk you over to those meetings and you have in-person meetings with your members of Congress and their staff. It's an awesome opportunity to get some face time. And it's just the beginning, if you've never lobbied before, of building that relationship with your elected officials, because that should be and will be continuing throughout the year. They should be hearing from you all the time (laughs) or as often as possible. And Lobby Day is a great time to meet other activists from across the country, get that training. And uh, if you haven't already, uh, start building relationship with your elected officials. And they can go to secular.org for more information about that. Yes. And you can also register directly on lobbyday.us. Cool. And I will tell you that I have done it once before. It seemed overwhelming, like, because I'd never gone into that office before and and met with my representative. But uh, SCA made it really easy. And it was a really neat experience being able to talk to who at the time was my Republican representative and explain to them why I cared about these issues that 
for the most part, she said she agreed with at the time. Uh, now she's not in office. So there you go. Uh, it was a good experience. If you're in D.C. or you could make it to D.C. at the end of April, it's a really good event. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure.